The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. So we're going to begin today by listening to a portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, starting with the first verse. Listen now for God's word to you. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were, by nature, children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. A month and a half ago, Condé Nast selected Alexi McCammond, a 27-year-old African-American journalist, to be the new editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, a magazine which boldly bills itself as a young person's guide to saving the world. Ms. McCammond, a, a rising star and acclaimed reporter, never began the job. In the week before she was set to move into her office, a staff member at Teen Vogue began to circulate 10-year-old tweets in which Ms. McCammon posted ugly comments about Asian Americans and made use of homophobic slurs. Ms. Cammond made these posts when she was 17 years old, and three years ago, she apologized for them. This past March, a few weeks ago, she apologized again. Clearly and without equivocating, she owned her earlier self's bad judgment and repudiated the racism in her social media posts. It wasn't enough. Her plea for forgiveness was rejected by a wolf pack of online critics. Ms. McCammond, a promising journalist, resigned the editorship before she began. A quick postscript. 
because stories like this never end. A few weeks ago, another dust-up began to churn at Teen Vogue. Christine Davitt, the writer who had exposed the damning comments from McCammon's past and demanded the new editor's resignation, is now herself under scrutiny as racist posts from her own past have surfaced. Writing for USA Today, Scott Jennings describes this incident and other stories involving teenagers and social media posts and concludes, we have an epidemic of gracelessness in America. Is Jennings right? In pursuing righteousness, in trying to expose and unseat those who have transgressed against contemporary purity codes, have we lost our capacity for, for mercy and forgiveness, for repentance and redemption, for allowing people to start again? In today's passage from Ephesians, the Apostle Paul goes all in describing grace. Grace is a parent standing with her hands on her hips, looking down at us, children covered in muck, fresh from exploring the sewer pipes of life, befouling heaven's front porch with our muddy tracks. We're so completely covered in sin, writes the apostle, we've become unrecognizable. We're dead. Now, typically, of course, a diagnosis like that, you've choked to death on sin, would be the last word. But not, says Ephesians, when God is involved. God embraces the unembraceable. God stoops to wash us clean and breathe life back into us. This is how humanity is saved. It's not saved, no matter what it says on the masthead, by the backbiting authors of some teen magazine eager to purge every sinner from their ranks. It's saved by grace. Despite the muck dripping from our souls, despite the wrongs we have done, despite the unforgivable things we have said and done, despite the fact that we have earned the label children of wrath, says Ephesians, God's heart brims with love for us. This unmerited favor, this yes when we expect what when we deserve a no, this father who runs down the road toward a prodigal son, this, this woman who sweeps every corner of her home looking for a lost coin, God's embrace for the lost, which is all of us, all, all, all of us is Christian bedrock. And if we're honest, cross your heart candid, we stumble over this chunk of theological bedrock all the time. Grace offends us. It really does. C.S. Lewis once wrote that everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea, until they have something to forgive. Lewis observes that we're comfortable picturing ourselves as forgiven by God. That is amazing grace. 
but were scandalized by the suggestion that God's grace extends to those whom we despise, bestowing unmerited favor on the reprobate, on our enemies, makes God seem naive and perhaps even unjust. God engages, to use a phrase that is all the rage today, in false moral equivalencies. God lumps us in with with all sorts of other sinners, people we're absolutely confident who are way worse than us. God gathers everyone together in one boat and says, by grace, you are saved. And this sort of grace does not look all that amazing to us. We we know there are worse sinners out there. We, We have identified them, and we are uniquely positioned, we believe, to bring them to justice. I confess, I'm guilty of this conceit. I belong to the group Paul describes as children of wrath. I have more count of money Christo running through my veins than Jesus of Nazareth. I am scandalized by grace. I think we all are. And while the wrath coursing through our bloodstream feels mighty righteous, our tradition shakes shakes its head. What exactly do we think the end result of all this righteous indignation is going to be. Flannery O'Connor is one of my favorite writers, a master of the short story format. O'Connor's brief, often violent tales are populated with vivid characters who embody the racial prejudice of the Gothic South. There's Mrs. Ruby Turpin, an upstanding pig farmer who has developed an elaborate caste system, a codified racism that she eagerly shares with all around her. There's the manipulative grandmother in A Good Man is Hard to Find, a woman whose only true words come when she faces the prospect of being shot. O'Connor delighted in exposing the flaws of all sorts of people, but she was especially keen on poking at those who consider themselves morally superior to the rest of humanity. The story I'd like us to consider today is is just such a tale. Written in 1961, shortly before O'Connor's untimely death, it is entitled, Everything That Rises, must converge. Everything Rises won the O. Henry Award for short fiction in 1963. The plot revolves around two people, family members, whose relationship is characterized by moral failings and a lack of grace. Julian is a recent college graduate and aspiring writer, a young white man who has returned to live at home with his mother in an unnamed southern city in the early 1960s. Julian's mother is an older woman with health issues 
who combines, she combines sort of southern gentility, cloying sweetness, and deeply entrenched racism in one doozy of a package. The story follows these two souls on a bus trip to the YMCA. Julian's mother is going there for reducing classes. Her doctor has urged her to lose some weight. And Julian accompanies his mother on the trip because she's frightened at the prospect of taking a trip on the newly racially integrated bus system. As they travel along, Julian, who views himself as an enlightened person, decides that the time has come to teach his mother a moral lesson. He goes out of his way to be extra friendly to every African-American person on the bus. Uh, but curiously, as Julian revels in his mother's discomfort, we begin to catch glimpses into his own equally racist mindset. The story concludes, as O'Connor stories often do, in a shocking manner. Confronted by a changing world that she can no longer comprehend, forced to face uncomfortable truths by a son who extends neither grace nor love to her, the story ends with Julian's mother sitting splayed on a sidewalk, having what appears to be a massive stroke. As O'Connor draws the curtain on these two broken souls, she describes them as being covered in a tide of darkness. I rehearsed this cheery story today because I think it frames the predicament faced by contemporary culture in the clearest of terms. Julian is right about his mother's racism. He is, however, arrogant and wrong in thinking that he has somehow escaped the racial prejudices he so easily identifies in others. And he's also wrong, morally wrong, and I would argue spiritually wrong in the methods he employs to try and get his mother to face her sin. How can we, sinners whom the Apostle Paul describes as children of wrath, escape the same fate? Learn to depend, says Ephesians, on the grace of God. Live your life according to acknowledging the grace of God. Approach others with the grace of God in your heart. Acknowledge that if, if grace can save your sorry soul, it just might be able to save others as well. The critical role that grace plays in our interactions with each other, and even in our quest for justice, is captured by an American proverb sometimes attributed to poet Maya Angelou. Angelou is said to have remarked, I've learned that people will forget what you said, and people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel.
we know these words are true. I can remember with special vividness times when people have made me feel inadequate and ashamed. I can see with utter clarity the twisted face of a parishioner who scowled and thrust his finger at my chest while telling me that I was an embarrassment to the church because my shoes were cheap, rubber-soled lace-ups, and not the glistening leather-soled wingtips clergy were supposed to wear. I'll never forget how small that fellow made me feel. I bet you have moments like that locked in your cerebral cortex too. So why then? Why, when we bear these scars up here, do we turn around and heap scorn on others? Is it to dispense justice? Do we think they deserve it? Or is it out of our own brokenness? Have our hearts lost contact with God's mercy? Have we forgotten the sweet taste of grace? This past week, I went for a bike ride in the park. I have a new electric blue bike with a basket out front. I'm trying to work off the effects of way too much COVID pasta. After crossing to the west side, riding south, and then cutting back toward the east side, I sat down on a park bench alongside the Great Lawn. I unscrewed the cap on my water bottle and people watched for about a half an hour. It's a fascinating exercise. You New Yorkers out there know what I'm talking about. When you're sitting still on a bench, while other people walk by, people will enter and depart your field of vision in about 30 seconds. They're within earshot for only about 10 of those seconds. So you get to eavesdrop on strangers' conversations, but only in these little 10-second snippets. Two women in their early 50s, walking fast, wearing exercise clothes, zip into range. The taller woman says, you'll never guess what I did yesterday. What, says the other. I got a colonoscopy, she replied. It wasn't bad, except for, and then mercifully, they were out of earshot. Two men in their 20s, tourists, I would guess, holding hands, say little, one of them observes so much green right in the middle of the city. The other smiles. They're in love. A 40-year-old woman walking alone, but talking a mile a minute on the phone to her sister, maybe, complains. So I get there, and mom has done nothing. Dad's office is a total mess, stuff piled everywhere. I don't even know where to start. A 30-year-old woman with a baseball cap on, moving slowly, says nothing, but she observes everything. Under the cap, her hair is cropped very short. It could be chemo. It looks like chemo. 
She stops, leans over the fence, and sticks her nose in a flowering shrub. She seems more attentive to the world than anyone else. A woman in her 70s talks on the phone. She's conducting a financial transaction of some sort. Still, she pauses every 10 feet or so to turn and look at the 70-year-old man who trails her by about 10 yards. Come on, Harold, she says. We have to keep moving. A little league team thunders by, boys and girls dressed in green uniforms, holding stiff gloves, laughing and running. Their coach keeps yelling, field number three, field number three. Two women push strollers. One says to the other, I'm so sick of it. I'm starting to wonder, have I wasted my life? An older couple in their 90s approaches, moving slowly, arm in arm. She's petite, wearing a gray sweater. He's tall, stooped, his jaw is moving, an involuntary tremor. It could be Parkinson's, I think. It takes a while for this couple to shuffle into earshot. And when they do, I realize I'm wrong. It's no tremor. His jaw moves because he's singing. He's singing to her. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. Sitting there in Central Park on a bench, watching that couple walk away, I start to sob. Embarrassing stuff dribbles out of my nose. The next person walking by looks at me with concern. I collect my blue bike and head for home. For days, I've been thinking about what I witnessed this past week in the park. The 90-year-old man serenading his wife was a touching scene incredibly touching and it's so touching I think because it does not stand alone it came as a signal flare illuminating the sometimes strange sometimes joyful sometimes tragic flow of life around it it, it cast light on on conversations about colonoscopies and fractured dreams it offered its blessing to a, a budding romance into a cancer patient inhaling deep breaths of honeysuckle. This, I think, is the way of grace. It surprises us. It, it turns our head. It, it's a divine love song we didn't expect to hear. It's a flash of recognition, a, a truth that overwhelms us. God will not turn away, will not leave us for dead, will not shoo us off heaven's porch because our shoes are covered with muck. God really is all about mercy. 
those who get this, who experience this, who, who witness this, folk like the Apostle Paul know in their heart of hearts, they know they have just glimpsed the one thing humanity needs above all else. We need grace. Word, says the good book, with annoying persistence. Fixing humanity's deadly problems does not start with our righteousness, our good works, or even our carefully crafted ethical codes. It starts with grace. And this is the testimony of our faith. If we stand on grace, if we trust in grace, if we lean on grace, our work, our relationships, our pursuit of justice, and yes, even our walks in the park will be different, gloriously, surprisingly, scandalously different. Have courage, my friends. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen.